Part 4, Sections 1 through 13 of A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and the Beautiful by Edmund Burke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and the Beautiful by Edmund Burke. Part 4, Section 1 of the efficient cause of the sublime and beautiful. When I say I intend to inquire into the efficient cause of sublimity and beauty, I would not be understood to say that I can come to the ultimate cause. I do not pretend that I shall ever be able to explain why certain affections of the body produce such a distinct emotion of mind and no other, or why the body is at all affected by the mind or the mind by the body. A little thought will show this to be impossible. But I conceive if we can discover what affections of the mind produce certain emotions of the body, and what distinct feelings and qualities of body shall produce certain determinate passions in the mind, and no others, I fancy a great deal will be done, something not unuseful towards a distinct knowledge of our passions, so far at least as we have them at present under our consideration. This is all I believe we can do. If we could advance a step farther, difficulties would still remain, as we should be still equally distant from the first cause. When Newton first discovered the property of attraction and settled its laws, he found it served very well to explain several of the most remarkable phenomena in nature but yet with reference to the general system of things, he could consider attraction but as an effect, whose cause at that time he did not attempt to trace. But when he afterwards began to account for it by a subtle elastic ether, this great man, if in so great a man it be not impious to discover anything like a blemish, seemed to have quitted his usual cautious manner of philosophizing, since, perhaps allowing all that has been advanced on this subject to be sufficiently proved, I think it leaves us with as many difficulties as it found us. That great chain of causes which, linking one to another, even to the throne of God himself, can never be unraveled by any industry of ours. When we go but one step beyond the immediate sensible qualities of things, we go out of our depth. All we do after is but a faint struggle that shows we are in an element which does not belong to us. So that when I speak of cause and efficient cause, I only mean certain affections of the mind that cause certain changes in the body, or certain powers and properties in bodies that work a change in the mind as, if I were to explain the motion of a body falling to the ground, I would say it was caused by gravity, and I would endeavor to show after what manner this power operated, without attempting to show why it operated in this manner, or if I were to explain the effects of bodies striking one another by the common laws of percussion, I should not endeavor to explain how motion itself is communicated. Section 2. Association. 
It is no small bar in the way of our inquiry into the cause of our passions, that the occasions of many of them are given, and that their governing motions are communicated at a time when we have not capacity to reflect on them, at a time of which all sort of memory is worn out of our minds. For besides such things as affect us in various manners, according to their natural powers, there are associations made at that early season which we find it very hard afterwards to distinguish from natural effects. Not to mention the unaccountable antipathies which we find in many persons, we all find it impossible to remember when a steep became more terrible than a plain, or fire or water more terrible than a clod of earth though all these are very probably either conclusions from experience or arising from the premonitions of others, and some of them impressed in all likelihood pretty late. But as it must be allowed that many things affect us after a certain manner, not by any natural powers they have for that purpose, but by association, so it would be absurd, on the other hand, to say that all things affect us by association only, since some things must have been originally and naturally agreeable or disagreeable, from which the others derive their associated powers. And it would be, I fancy, to little purpose to look for the cause of our passions in association until we fail of it in the natural properties of things. Section 3 cause of pain and fear i have before observed footnote part one section seven end footnote that whatever is qualified to cause terror is a foundation capable of the sublime to which i add that not only these but many things from which we cannot probably apprehend any danger have a similar effect because they operate in a similar manner I observed too, footnote, part one, section ten, end footnote, that whatever produces pleasure, positive and original pleasure, is fit to have beauty engrafted on it. Therefore, to clear up the nature of these qualities, it may be necessary to explain the nature of pain and pleasure on which they depend. A man who suffers under violent bodily pain I suppose the most violent, because the effect may be the more obvious. I say a man in great pain has his teeth set, his eyebrows are violently contracted, his forehead is wrinkled, his eyes are dragged inwards and rolled with great vehemence, his hair stands on end, the voice is forced out in short shrieks and groans, and the whole fabric totters. Fear or terror, which is an apprehension of pain or death, exhibits exactly the same effects, approaching in violence to those just mentioned, in proportion to the nearness of the cause and the weakness of the subject. This is not only so in the human species, but I have more than once observed in dogs, under an apprehension of punishment, that they have writhed their bodies and yelped and howled, as if they had actually felt the blows. From hence I conclude that pain and fear act upon the same parts of the body, and in the same manner, though somewhat differing in degree, 
that pain and fear consist in an unnatural tension of the nerves, that this is sometimes accompanied with an unnatural strength, which sometimes suddenly changes into an extraordinary weakness, that these effects often come on alternately, and are sometimes mixed with each other. This is the nature of all convulsive agitations, especially in weaker subjects, which are the most liable to the severest impressions of pain and fear. The only difference between pain and terror is that things which cause pain operate on the mind by the intervention of the body, whereas things that cause terror generally affect the bodily organs by the operation of the mind suggesting the danger, but both agreeing either primarily or secondarily in producing a tension, contraction, or violent emotion of the nerves. Footnote. I do not here enter into the question debated among physiologists whether pain be the effect of a contraction or a tension of the nerves. Either will serve my purpose, for by tension I mean no more than a violent pulling of the fibers which compose any muscle or membrane, in whatever way this is done. End footnote. They agree likewise in everything else, for it appears very clearly to me from this, as well as from many other examples, that when the body is disposed by any means whatsoever to such emotions as it would acquire by the means of a certain passion, it will of itself excite something very like that passion in the mind. Section 4. Continued. To this purpose, Mr. Spon, in his Recherches d'Antiquité, gives us a curious story of the celebrated physiognomist Campanella. This man, it seems, had not only made very accurate observations on human faces, but was very expert in mimicking such as were any way remarkable. When he had a mind to penetrate into the inclinations of those he had to deal with, he composed his face, his gesture, and his whole body, as nearly as he could, into the exact similitude of the person he intended to examine, and then carefully observed what turn of mind he seemed to acquire by this change. So that, says my author, he was able to enter into the dispositions and thoughts of people as effectually as if he had been changed into the very men. I have often observed that on mimicking the looks and gestures of angry or placid or frightened or daring men, I have involuntarily found my mind turned to that passion whose appearance I endeavored to imitate. Nay, I am convinced it is hard to avoid it, though one strove to separate the passion from its correspondent gestures. Our minds and bodies are so closely and intimately connected that one is incapable of pain or pleasure without the other. Campanella, of whom we have been speaking, could so abstract his attention from any sufferings of his body that he was able to endure the rack itself without much pain, and in lesser pains everybody must have observed that, when we can employ our attention on anything else, the pain has been for a time suspended. On the other hand, 
if by any means the body is indisposed to perform such gestures, or to be stimulated into such emotions as any passion usually produces in it, that passion itself never can arise, though its cause should be never so strongly in action, though it should be merely mental, and immediately affecting none of the senses, as an opiate or spiritous liquor shall suspend the operation of grief or fear or anger, in spite of all our efforts to the contrary, and this by inducing in the body a disposition contrary to that which it receives from these passions. Section 5. How the Sublime is Produced Having considered terror as producing an unnatural tension and certain violent emotions of the nerves, it easily follows from what we have just said, that whatever is fitted to produce such a tension must be productive of a passion similar to terror. Footnote. Part 2, Section 2. End footnote. And consequently must be a source of the sublime, though it should have no idea of danger connected with it so that little remains towards showing the cause of the sublime, but to show that the instances we have given of it in the second part relate to such things as are fitted by nature to produce this sort of tension, either by the primary operation of the mind or the body. With regard to such things as affect by the associated idea of danger, there can be no doubt but that they produce terror, and act by some modification of that passion, and that terror, when sufficiently violent, raises the emotions of the body just mentioned, can as little be doubted. But if the sublime is built on terror or some passion like it, which has pain for its object, it is previously proper to inquire how any species of delight can be derived from a cause so apparently contrary to it. I say delight because, as I have often remarked, it is very evidently different in its cause and in its own nature from actual and positive pleasure. Section 6. How Pain Can Be a Cause of Delight Providence has so ordered it that a state of rest and inaction, however it may flatter our indolence, shall be productive of many inconveniences that it should generate such disorders as may force us to have recourse to some labor, as a thing absolutely requisite to make us pass our lives with tolerable satisfaction. For the nature of rest is to suffer all the parts of our bodies to fall into a relaxation that not only disables the members from performing their functions, but takes away the vigorous tone of fiber which is requisite for carrying on the natural and necessary secretions. At the same time, that in this languid, inactive state, the nerves are more liable to the most horrid convulsions than when they are sufficiently braced and strengthened. Melancholy, dejection, despair, and often self-murder is the consequence of the gloomy view we take of things in this relaxed state of body. The best remedy for all these evils is exercise or labor, and labor is a surmounting of difficulties, an exertion of the contracting power of the muscles, and as such resembles pain, 
which consists in tension or contraction, in everything but degree. Labor is not only requisite to preserve the coarser organs in a state fit for their functions, but it is equally necessary to these finer and more delicate organs, on which and by which the imagination and perhaps the other mental powers act since it is probable that not only the inferior parts of the soul and the passions are called, but the understanding itself makes use of some fine corporeal instruments in its operation, though what they are and where they are may be somewhat hard to settle. But that it does make use of such appears from hence, that a long exercise of the mental powers induces a remarkable lassitude of the whole body, and on the other hand, that great bodily labor or pain weakens and sometimes actually destroys the mental faculties. Now as a due exercise is essential to the coarse muscular parts of the constitution, and that without this rousing they would become languid and diseased, the very same rule holds with regard to those finer parts we have mentioned. To have them in proper order, they must be shaken and worked to a proper degree. Section 7. Exercise Necessary for the Finer Organs As common labor, which is a mode of pain, is the exercise of the grosser, a mode of terror is the exercise of the finer parts of the system. And if a certain mode of pain be of such a nature as to act upon the eye or the ear, as they are the most delicate organs, the affection approaches more nearly to that which has a mental cause. In all these cases, if the pain and terror are so modified as not to be actually noxious, if the pain is not carried to violence, and the terror is not conversant about the present destruction of the person, as these emotions clear the parts, whether fine or gross, of a dangerous and troublesome encumbrance, they are capable of producing delight, not pleasure, but a sort of delightful horror, a sort of tranquillity tinged with terror, which, as it belongs to self-preservation, is one of the strongest of all the passions. Its object is the sublime. Footnote. Part 2, Section 1. End footnote. Its highest degree I call astonishment. The subordinate degrees are awe, reverence, and respect, which, by the very etymology of the words, show from what source they are derived, and how they stand distinguished from positive pleasure. Section 8. Why things not dangerous sometimes produce a passion like terror. A mode of terror or pain is always the cause of the sublime. Footnote. Part 1, Section 7. Part 2, Section 2. End footnote. For terror or associated danger, the foregoing explication is, I believe, sufficient. It will require something more trouble to show that such examples as I have given of the sublime in the second part are capable of producing a mode of pain, and of being thus allied to terror, 
and to be accounted for on the same principles. And first of such objects as are great in their dimensions. I speak of visual objects. Section 9. Why visual objects of great dimensions are sublime. Vision is performed by having a picture formed by the rays of light, which are reflected from the object painted in one piece instantaneously on the retina or the last nervous part of the eye. Or, according to others, there is but one point of any object painted on the eye in such a manner as to be perceived at once, but by moving the eye we gather up with great celerity the several parts of the object, so as to form one uniform piece. If the former opinion be allowed, it will be considered, footnote, part two, section seven, end footnote, that though all the light reflected from a large body should strike the eye in one instant, yet we must suppose that the body itself is formed of a vast number of distinct points, every one of which, or the ray from every one, makes an impression on the retina, so that, though the image of one point should cause but a small tension of this membrane, another and another and another stroke must in their progress cause a very great one, until it arrives at last to the highest degree, and the whole capacity of the eye, vibrating in all its parts, must approach near to the nature of what causes pain, and consequently must produce an idea of the sublime. Again, if we take it, that one point only of an object is distinguishable at once, the matter will amount nearly to the same thing, or rather it will make the origin of the sublime from greatness of dimension yet clearer. For if but one point is observed at once, the eye must traverse the vast space of such bodies with great quickness, and consequently the fine nerves and muscles destined to the motion of that part must be very much strained, and their great sensibility must make them highly affected by this straining. Besides, it signifies just nothing to the effect produced whether a body has its parts connected and makes its impression at once, or, making but one impression of a point at a time, it causes a succession of the same or others so quickly as to make them seem united as is evident from the common effect of whirling about a lighted torch or a piece of wood, which, if done with celerity, seems a circle of fire. Section 10. Unity. Why requisite to vastness? It may be objected to this theory that the eye generally receives an equal number of rays at all times, and that therefore a great object cannot affect it by the number of rays more than the variety of objects which the eye must always discern whilst it remains open. But to this I answer, that admitting an equal number of rays, or an equal quantity of luminous particles to strike the eye at all times, yet if these rays frequently vary their nature, now to blue, now to red, and so on, 
or their manner of termination, as to a number of petty squares, triangles, or the like, at every change, whether of color or shape, the organ has a sort of relaxation or rest. But this relaxation and labor, so often interrupted, is by no means productive of ease, neither has it the effect of vigorous and uniform labor. Whoever has remarked the different effects of some strong exercise and some little piddling action will understand why a teasing, fretful employment, which at once wearies and weakens the body, should have nothing great, these sorts of impulses, which are rather teasing than painful, by continually and suddenly altering their tenor and direction, prevent that full tension, that species of uniform labor, which is allied to strong pain, and causes the sublime. The sum total of things of various kinds, though it should equal the number of the uniform parts composing some one entire object, is not equal in its effect upon the organs of our bodies. Besides the one already assigned, there is another very strong reason for the difference. The mind in reality hardly ever can attend diligently to more than one thing at a time. If this thing be little, the effect is little, and a number of other little objects cannot engage the attention. The mind is bounded by the bounds of the object, and what is not attended to, and what does not exist, are much the same in the effect. But the eye or the mind, for in this case there is no difference, in great uniform objects, does not readily arrive at their bounds. It has no rest whilst it contemplates them. The image is much the same everywhere, so that everything great by its quantity must necessarily be one, simple, and entire. Section 11. The Artificial Infinite. We have observed that a species of greatness arises from the artificial infinite, and that this infinite consists in a uniform succession of great parts. We observe, too, that the same uniform succession had a like power in sound. But because the effects of many things are clearer in one of the senses than in another, and that all the senses bear analogy to and illustrate one another, I shall begin with this power in sounds, as the cause of the sublimity from succession is rather more obvious in the sense of hearing. And I shall here once for all observe that an investigation of the natural and mechanical causes of our passions, besides the curiosity of the subject, gives, if they are discovered, a double strength and luster to any rules we deliver on such matters. When the ear receives any simple sound, it is struck by a single pulse of the air, which makes the eardrum and the other membranous parts vibrate according to the nature and species of the stroke. If the stroke be strong, the organ of hearing suffers a considerable degree of tension. If the stroke be repeated pretty soon after, the repetition causes an expectation of another stroke. 
and it must be observed that expectation itself causes attention. This is apparent in many animals who, when they prepare for hearing any sound, rouse themselves and prick up their ears, so that here the effect of the sounds is considerably augmented by a new auxiliary, the expectation. But though after a number of strokes we expect still more, not being able to ascertain the exact time of their arrival, when they arrive they produce a sort of surprise, which increases this tension yet further. For I have observed that when at any time I have waited very earnestly for some sound, that returned at intervals, as the successive firing of cannon, though I fully expected the return of the sound, when it came, it always made me start a little. The eardrum suffered a convulsion, and the whole body consented with it. The tension of the part thus increasing at every blow, by the united forces of the stroke itself, the expectation and the surprise, it is worked up to such a pitch as to be capable of the sublime. It is brought just to the verge of pain, even when the cause has ceased, the organs of hearing being often successively struck in a similar manner, continue to vibrate in that manner for some time longer. This is an additional help to the greatness of the effect. Section 12. The vibrations must be similar. But if the vibration be not similar at every impression, it can never be carried beyond the number of actual impressions. For move any body as a pendulum in one way, and it will continue to oscillate in an arc of the same circle until the known causes make it rest. But if, after first putting it in motion in one direction, you push it into another, it can never reassume the first direction, because it can never move itself and consequently it can have but the effect of that last motion, whereas if in the same direction you act upon it several times, it will describe a greater arc, and move a longer time. Section 13. The Effects of Succession in Visual Objects Explained If we can comprehend clearly how things operate upon one of our senses, there can be very little difficulty in conceiving in what manner they affect the rest. To say a great deal, therefore, upon the corresponding affections of every sense would tend rather to fatigue us by a useless repetition than to throw any new light upon the subject by that ample and diffuse manner of treating it. But as in this discourse we chiefly attach ourselves to the sublime, as it affects the eye, we shall consider particularly why a successive disposition of uniform parts in the same right line should be sublime. Footnote. Part 2, Section 10. End footnote. And upon what principle this disposition is enabled to make a comparatively small quantity of matter produce a grander effect than a much larger quantity disposed in another manner. To avoid the perplexity of general notions, let us set before our eyes a colonnade of uniform pillars planted in a right line. Let us take our stand in such a manner that the eye may shoot along this colonnade. 
for it has its best effect in this view. In our present situation it is plain that the rays from the first round pillar will cause in the eye a vibration of that species, an image of the pillar itself. The pillar immediately succeeding increases it. That which follows renews and enforces the impression. Each in its order as it succeeds repeats impulse after impulse and stroke after stroke until the eye, long exercised in one particular way, cannot lose that object immediately and, being violently roused by this continued agitation, it presents the mind with a grand or sublime conception. But instead of viewing a rank of uniform pillars, let us suppose that they succeed each other, around and square one alternately. In this case the vibration caused by the first round pillar perishes as soon as it is formed, and one of quite another sort, the square, directly occupies its place which, however, it resigns as quickly to the round one, and thus the eye proceeds alternately, taking up one image and laying down another, as long as the building continues. From whence it is obvious that, at the last pillar, the impression is as far from continuing as it was at the very first, because, in fact, the sensory can receive no distinct impression but from the last, and it can never of itself resume a dissimilar impression. Besides, every variation of the object is a rest and relaxation to the organs of sight, and these reliefs prevent that powerful emotion so necessary to produce the sublime. To produce, therefore, a perfect grandeur in such things as we have been mentioning, there should be a perfect simplicity, an absolute uniformity in disposition, shape, and coloring. Upon this principle of succession and uniformity it may be asked why a long bare wall should not be a more sublime object than a colonnade, since the succession is no way interrupted, since the eye meets no check, since nothing more uniform can be conceived. A long bare wall is certainly not so grand an object as a colonnade of the same length and height. It is not altogether difficult to account for this difference. When we look at a naked wall, from the evenness of the object, the eye runs along its whole space and arrives quickly at its termination. The eye meets nothing which may interrupt its progress but then it means nothing which may detain it a proper time to produce a very great and lasting effect. The view of a bare wall, if it be of a great height and length, is undoubtedly grand, but this is only one idea, and not a repetition of similar ideas. It is therefore great not so much upon the principle of infinity as upon that of vastness but we are not so powerfully affected with any one impulse unless it be one of a prodigious force indeed, as we are with a succession of similar impulses, because the nerves of the sensory do not, if I may use the expression, acquire a habit of repeating the same feeling in such a manner as to continue it longer than its cause is in action.
Besides all the effects which I have attributed to expectation and surprise in section 11 can have no place in a bare wall. End of part 4, sections 1 through 13 of A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and the Beautiful by Edmund Burke.